Okay, um, let's start. Welcome to this, I think it's the fourth installment, the fourth part of the lecture series organized by the International Relations Department's European Foreign Policy Unit on European Union Foreign Policy. After Lisbon, today um, we're going to discuss the EU's influence in the Eastern neighborhood. I hope that's also what you're expecting um, to hear about. Let me briefly introduce the panelists um, to my very left, as I'm Hiski Haukala. I thought I practiced pronouncing it, but I'm still getting it wrong. Who is a professor of international relations at the School of Management at the University of Tampere, um, who was also uh, previously a special advisor at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Finland uh, and a researcher at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs. Um, he has published widely, amongst other things, on the EU's um, Eastern Neighbourhood Policy and the probably most pertinent uh, um, recent publication was that he's co-edited a special issue of the Journal of Contemporary European Studies together with Jackie Gao, who I've also just seen in the audience, um, so, um, uh, on um, the EU and Russia. Then, um, in the middle of the three panelists, we have Stefan Wolf, who is a professor, professor, I'm going to say in a German way, also dramatically, <laughs> um, <laughs> professor of international relations at the University of Birmingham. Um, Stefan has um, published a book extensively, generally on conflict prevention, conflict management in um, after and during ethnic conflicts um, in many parts of the world, um, including the neighborhood. He's also been involved in actual conflict uh, <coughs> processes, such as in Iraq, Sudan, although we might have possible. Um, the most pertinent uh, recent publication for our subject is that he's co-edited with Richard Whitman, I don't think he's in the audience, um, the, and, uh, a book on the European neighbor policy in perspective. Um, and then to my left, we have Nico Popescu, who is a research fellow at the European Council of Foreign Relations here in London, uh, where he's uh, working mainly on um, Eastern Neighborhood and Russia. Um, and his most recent uh, pertinent publication on the subject is EU Foreign Policy and Post-Soviet Conflicts Stealth Intervention, which came out um, in December 2010. Okay, that much for our uh, panelists. Um, Briefly, uh, each of them is going to give a, uh, a statement on what we think are key questions here in that area. Broadly, how effective the European neighborhood policy has been as an instrument of the EU in influencing domestic politics in the Eastern neighborhood. Um, also, more specifically, whether they think that the Eastern partnership um, has made a difference yeah, focusing more specifically on the countries in the Eastern neighborhood um, and whether the entry of the Lisbon Treaty has made a difference and if they could change anything in the neighborhood policy, um, what, what would they do? What would they think um, could be saved? <laughs> um, the, our roundtable is being podcast, it's being recorded, so I'm going to ask the panelists to stand up at the lecture to, to give a 10-minute um, uh, presentation or introduction on those questions. We didn't agree an order, but do you want to just go in the order? Um, in which I think I'm fine either way. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. Now it's on, I guess. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ladies and gentlemen, happy to see such a, a sizable audience here at the Leather Sea. It's, it's a particular pleasure and honor, of course, to be giving this uh, short talk here, although I must warn you that, that the lecture 
lengthening thing when it's 90 minutes, <laughs> um, which coincides with the length of this panel, actually. So you have me warned. Uh, because I only have a few minutes, I'm going to be very quick and make four quick points concerning the European neighborhood policy, trying to address some, but not all, of the issues raised by the, by the chair. The first point would be sort of a positive and, and an encouraging point for the European Union, basically saying the European neighborhood policy has been based on a sound vision and, 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 and the correct analysis to a, like, to a large extent. If we go back to the 2002 famous or infamous speech by Roman Prodi about the Ring of Friends, and I think there was there is a lot to be said about his original approach and his ideas, because there were, of course, uh, some realities that couldn't be denied. There were new neighbors in the offing, uh, which were largely uninterpretable. Un 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 That's not actually a word in the English language, but <laughs> still try to use it. Uh, and there was also uh, enlargement fatigue in the European Union to a large extent. And, and, and so there was obviously a lack of appetite for further enlargements while there was clearly a demand for new forms of engagement on the part of the new emerging neighbors of the neighborhood. And what more, there was a growing realization within the European Union that its normative power, its ability to shape its neighborhood was sort of in danger of being lost if the EU would indeed relinquish enlargement, which seemed at the, at the time a realistic proposition indeed. And so the answer provided by the European Union was of course the European neighborhood policy uh, to sort of salvage the, the, the crucial elements, uh, the, the elements of stability projection, the, the element of effecting change in the neighborhood, but without actually granting the, the golden carrot of accession to the neighbors. And I would say that to a large extent, the, the, the sound, it, it was a sound vision and, and based on a craft analysis. This was, I would still say, it still is the only feasible way forward for the European Union when it comes to its eastern neighborhood. The second point, however, is a less encouraging one because, as we know, the ENP in its uh, sort of execution or implementation has not been a, a, a huge success, however. And, and, uh, and I think there are certain key reasons why this has been the, the case. The first, perhaps, is the, the, that the incentive structure has been skewed. Uh, basically, the EU has been asking too much and too quickly and giving too little in return. And, and in, in some publications, I have been toying with this dual conception of short and long-term rationality. And I guess it sort of explains part of the problems the EU has faced in its eastern neighborhood. And basically, uh, the, the rationale goes that many of the things of good governance and, and <coughs> changes and reforms the EU is promoting in the eastern neighborhood actually are long-term rational for, for many of the eastern neighbors themselves. I think the people in the Ukraine and, and in other countries know that, that engaging these kind of reforms would be good for them in the long term and sort of help them to, 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 to become more prosperous and more successful. But in the short term, it would mean relinquishing uh, political power, uh, patrimonial political structures, uh, putting uh, in jeopardy rent-seeking structures that sort of in the short term actually are fully rational and, 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 and serve the interests of the large segments of the elites in these countries. And therefore, this is part of the, the reason that actually actually accounts for the problems the EU has faced, the skewed incentive structure. 
In this respect, the Eastern Partnership has been an, an improvement in, in, in the sense that it has sort of been a, an attempt to, to correct the rather unresponsive EU attitude of take it or leave it packages. You can decide when and how you implement this, but most of the things you are going to implement have already been agreed in advance by Brussels. And so that the Eastern Partnership is great in, in, in sort of politicizing the concept and of course multilateralizing it, it itself and, and therefore perhaps making the European neighborhood policy less uh, hegemonic in the eyes of some of the neighbors. But to be honest, the, the, the question of membership has hung like a shadow, I think, over, over the European neighborhood policy on both sides. In the European Union, it has sort of hindered and, and slowed uh, many of the member states to, to come up with, with, a, with a credible and robust policy precisely because they were afraid that it would be a prelude to further enlargements. And on the eastern neighbor's side, I think the problem has been that they have been uh, disappointed and disillusioned with the, with the lack of a robust offer on the part of the European Union, waiting for something better to come along, perhaps, before they truly engage the European Union in the process. And therefore, a lot of positive momentum <coughs> should have come out of the EMP has been lost. The third point, and I'll try to be more brief, uh, deals with the present situation, and something I have been thinking about myself quite a bit recently is, and basically it comes, boils down to this, nobody knows the impact of the financial crisis it will have on the EU's credibility in, in Eastern neighbourhood and, and the very viability of the European neighbourhood policy in the years ahead. Basically, the question is this, what is the credibility of the European Union and, and the Commission in particular to insist that others adopt the mechanisms, models and benchmarks put forward by the European Union when everyone can say what a royal mess the EU itself is. And, and the underlying sort of theme that I've been thinking about is that I think the EU has been slightly arrogant, thinking that people want to emulate the European Union, they want to become part of the European Union because the power of our ideals or, or the, uh, the, the magnificence of our buildings in Brussels is not the case. They have wanted to become one of us because we have been the beacon of success, a model that has brought prosperity and success to countries in the European Union and the individual citizens in these countries. If this is no longer the case, if we cease to be successful in the eyes of our partners and neighbours, then indeed our uh, <coughs> approaches and attempts at projecting anything beyond our borders are going to be in jeopardy. So basically the final point is, and this is ironic of course, because of these current situations we find in the European Union in these days, the problem has been solved. The EU enlargement, I think for all means and purposes, has been removed from the agenda, because increasingly the neighbours don't want to become members anymore. If you look at Turkey, if you look at the Ukraine, you see the waning appetite to become a full EU member. But, that said, the problem remains. How shall we deal with our neighbours? What kind of a European neighbourhood policy are we going to require in the future? And I guess that is one of the reasons why this panel has been convened today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Ian. And after your initial threat, your timekeeping was perfect. Stefan, do you want to continue? Okay, so. Um, it's a hard act to follow, both in the sense of um, 
Hiskey obviously knows so much more about uh, the EMP than I do, um, but also he's actually very good in terms of uh, timekeeping, opposed to his initial thread, which is even worse for me because as my accent gives away, so I have sort of an almost national obligation uh, to be very much on time. So um, I'll, I'll try my best. And um, the way I frame my talk is basically in sort of three um, well sections of um, varying length. Uh, so the first point I want to make is that, um, in my view, the EMP is essentially a kind of foreign and security policy that the EU has developed. Certainly in the way that it has developed from this sort of alternative to enlargement that it was in 2003 um, to something that is very much now in my view concerned really with achieving security for the European Union by achieving stability in uh, the neighborhood. And uh, the EU in uh, its wisdom, and I would agree to um, some extent with Hiski here, that uh, there is actually a quite decent analysis that underlies sort of the development of the ENP throughout uh, that period from 2002 to 2003. Uh, and um, what that has meant is that sort of the EU, if we look at it as a foreign and security policy, really has focused the ENP on um, achieving impacts uh, that would contribute to greater stability in this supposed ring of uh, friends of prosperous democratic uh, human rights uh, respecting uh, states. And if we look at the actual policies and policy instruments that the EU has brought to bear, I think we can see sort of this wide mix of um, policies that are to a large extent reflective of the EU's own experience in how you can actually become a stable, democratic, prosperous. Uh, so you can call that hard and soft policies, and then break it down further. But uh, I would say it's sort of primarily four areas where the EU has tried to utilize uh, the neighborhood policy and, and various policy uh, instruments. Uh, on the one hand, it's the whole area of economic uh, cooperation aimed at economic development in the uh, neighboring states. Second point would be, of course, the promotion of democracy, good governance, uh, human rights, and the whole sort of institutional setup that uh, comes with that. Third point uh, is the question of cooperation um, in areas that uh, we would associate more with uh, the whole sort of pillar, if you excuse my sort of talking in pre-Lisbon uh, language of justice and home affairs. Um, and uh, I think this, again, also has very much institutional, institutional reform and institution building uh, focus. And then finally, the area that, um, if I know anything about the EMP, that's probably the area that I know uh, best, which is the area of conflict management. Um, of course, there is not that much to know about it, as I'll uh, explain uh, in a uh, second. So what that means then, um, in terms of the second point, is that um, from the perspective of the EMP being well, foreign and security policy, we have an overlap here between an internal uh, and an external uh, security agenda uh, of the EU. So the internal uh, agenda uh, mostly relates to um, security threats or challenges um, of uh, transnational organized crime, uh, migration, uh, corruption within 
both state institutions, but also in particular in uh, institutions uh, related to uh, the judicial um, sector in the neighboring countries and sort of security services uh, in, in the harder sense, uh, so border management uh, in particular here and the police. Um, the external agenda, I think here the EU, as far as the Eastern neighborhood is concerned, is primarily concerned uh, with two, and among those two, again, uh, I think it's one that is uh, particularly pressing, and that is the whole issue of these, um, whatever you want to call it, the frozen conflicts, ethnic conflicts, ethnic territorial conflicts, that uh, we still have quite a number of uh, in the neighborhood that still haven't been uh, fully resolved. So what I'm thinking here, of course, uh, is Moldova, the conflict um, uh, over Transnistria, uh, Georgia, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, then the conflict um, in Azerbaijan and between Azerbaijan and Armenia over Nagorno-Karabakh, but also to some extent I would say, um, in a don't want to sort of scare more over here, uh, there might uh, potentially in the future also be a question again over uh, Crimea, uh, where we have relative stability, um, have had this relative stability since about 1995, uh, but there are some very serious um, social tensions uh, in Crimea that very often go completely uh, underreported. Uh, and I think that there is a danger that uh, from these social problems actually renewed uh, conflict could uh, spread. And the other area, um, which is more related to sort of traditional um, external security agenda, I think is related to political instability, uh, in particular as it might flow out of processes of regime change, regime, regime transition, or not. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of Belarus, uh, but also if we look um, back a few years, uh, the whole color revolution, uh, Georgia, Ukraine. I mean, these were periods of, I think, quite significant worry for the EU of what was actually going on in the neighborhood, and if things should spin out of control, would the EU actually be in a position to do much about it, other than uh, protecting its borders, really. <coughs> so, now, uh, now we have the agenda, um, so we have the policy, um, but um, of course there is very limited uh, EU influence in any of these areas. Um, so maybe with the exception of Moldova, uh, it's really difficult to see what the EU has actually achieved uh, since 2003 uh, in uh, these areas. Um, there is, um, in that sense, um, at best a very modest impact that the ENP has really credibly uh, made here. Not in the sense that uh, there haven't been lots of programs and projects and lots of money being spent. Uh, but if you then actually read the uh, annual implementation reports uh, on the ENP, it's um, like glossing over um, failure uh, in language that kind of makes you think, well, yeah, maybe it wasn't quite as bad, and yeah, maybe there's a little bit of progress. Um, and I mean, in many ways, the best that, that can be said in a lot uh, of um, individual um, projects in countries are, or if you sort of look at the whole sectoral uh, approach that the EU has taken, analyzing where its ENP actually has come, it's um, sort of at best, it sort of, it remains at the level where it has been for quite some time. Uh, so, I mean, I'm not 
the EU is kept. I mean, I actually have uh, quite a lot of appreciation for the idea of the EU and uh, including its uh, neighborhood policy. But sometimes you really wonder, well, where is all this money going? What is all this money doing? Uh, and what can we really show for literally billions and billions of euros uh, having been spent uh, over the past almost <coughs> decade uh, on uh, the ENP and then uh, more lately, in particular, the Eastern Partnership? Now, we could, of course, ask, why is that? And I think that's an absolutely legitimate uh, question. And I don't want to go into all the uh, various uh, uh, problems that uh, we have. But really, I want to point out um, one particular challenge that the EU has, uh, in the sense that the fundamental problems uh, that are related to its relatively limited impact uh, in the Eastern neighborhood have by no means been resolved with the post-Lisbon uh, structure uh, of uh, sort of the EU's new foreign affairs uh, setup, if you want. Nor could one really have legitimately expected that that would actually be the case. I mean, post-Lisbon really was an institutional reform inside uh, the EU that for all its intents and purposes probably hasn't been that bad and certainly has uh, a lot of potential uh, to develop further. But a lot of the problems that the EU has with its impact in the Eastern neighborhood are actually problems in the Eastern neighborhood uh, itself. So what do I mean by that? Well, um, there are a couple of points here in Russia. Um, well, there is very little that uh, the EU actually is able to do uh, with Russia, vis-a-vis -vis Russia, which has to do with the fact that actually what we call the Eastern Neighborhood is called by the Russians the Near Abroad. Uh, so you basically have two uh, competing strategic uh, interests. Um, there is and forever has been uh, a problem that different member states have different attitudes uh, towards Russia and have different priorities in how they want to deal uh, with Russia. And uh, probably already if you sort of look across the panel here, uh, you will have sort of fairly neatly um, three different approaches uh, uh, to Russia embodied in, uh, uh, I would assume, our uh, original national uh, uh, origins. Um, also, could you spell that out? <laughs> well, I think Germany has traditionally had uh, what you would want to call, or might want to call, a Russia first uh, uh, policy, which means that nothing should happen in the eastern neighborhood which isn't or which is potentially offensive uh, uh, to Russia. And I mean, there is lots and lots of good historical reasons uh, for that. Um, but of course, it does limit uh, the ability of the EU actually to speak with a single uh, voice. And I mean, where we have had progress, um, in particular in relation to, uh, to Moldova, I mean, that does not count into my speaking time. That's already <laughs> But we have had this, uh, this problem that has basically come out of uh, a German-Russian initiative, uh, uh, the Maisenberg uh, uh, project. And that was something that German Foreign Office tells me oh, they would have loved to consult their uh, EU partners on this, but there just wasn't the time because <laughs> the Russians just popped that onto them a week or two before uh, they had the big uh, uh, summit uh, between Merkel and uh, uh, Medvedev. Uh, so they really they just had to go with it. It was an opportunity they couldn't miss. But of course, that didn't go down too well, uh, in particular uh, in London and, uh, and Paris and uh, Brussels. So, um, I mean, that's a problem. And then you also have 
traditionally had a very um, anti-Russia or Russia skeptic uh, camp uh, within the EU. Uh, so probably Sweden and, uh, and the UK are the most uh, prominent exponents. And it's very difficult for the EU really to speak with a single voice uh, um, to Russia or uh, even define what it wants with Russia or from Russia. So I think that's a, that's a major problem that uh, further inhibits um, I think the EU's effectiveness in um, relation to its um, uh, policy vis-a-vis uh, -vis the uh, Eastern neighborhood. Uh, so now you can start the clock again. Um, <laughs> very limited le leverage, uh, I think, uh, the EU has over the actual conflict parties um, uh, when we focus on the conflict management uh, uh, area. Um, so there is um, not that much that the EU really can uh, credibly offer uh, the Georgians or the uh, Azerbaijanis or um, the people in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, so th I mean, there's very little where the EU really can say, well, if you do X, we give you Y, and Y is really what you want uh, uh, above all else. Um, so from that perspective, there's not much where in traditional conflict management uh, terms, uh, the EU can do to influence uh, and shape uh, the behavior of the actual uh, conflict uh, parts. It's not completely uh, hopeless in that sense, and the EU does have uh, some incentives uh, that it can offer. Uh, but very often these uh, incentives pale uh, in terms of what the parties would have to deliver um, to uh, basically make the uh, EU uh, happy. Also, I think there is still limited diplomatic uh, uh, capacity uh, within the EU. I think that has been exacerbated on the one hand uh, by the fact that most people in the um, uh, European External Action Service are actually uh, commission people, and as such they are great at running projects and programs, uh, but they don't really have the kind of um, uh, political skills and uh, sensitivity uh, to actually deal with uh, particular sort of, let's say, more conflict, more security-related uh, uh, situations. Um, there's very limited uh, real expertise uh, in the EAS uh, in terms of how to manage these uh, security uh, challenges. And very often in the delegations uh, themselves, uh, you simply don't have people um, who have like real training on these issues. Uh, so most people, for example, in, um, uh, in the EU delegation in Moldova, they're all experts on trade and the DCFTA, and maybe you have some, uh, some organized crime uh, uh, people there. There's one person with a little bit of background from Georgia and uh, from Kosovo who basically runs the entire uh, um, Transnistria uh, operation where, according to the latest figures, I think the EU has uh, tens of millions uh, of euros every year to spend uh, without actually having a proper strategy uh, in place on how any of the money that is, it is spending in and on Transnistria can contribute to resolving uh, the conflict. Also, what hasn't helped in the case of Moldova, just to um, point it out, is the loss of the EU special representative. Maybe not the individual <laughs> itself, but uh, certainly the post, I think, uh, uh, is, um, I wouldn't have given it up. Um, so all of that, I think, also means um, that what the EU is really lacking in this area is uh, a strategy. Um, I mean, there is the ELP uh, as such, I think, is, um, is a visionary uh, uh, policy, and all the sort of strategic documents that we have had, I think, are very aspirational. But until very recently, 
uh, there hasn't been much detail in terms of what, uh, how that amounts to a proper strategy. So what are the objectives, what are the policies, what are the resources that you are uh, uh, committing? I think it has gotten quite a bit better in the um, uh, 2011 uh, strategic review of the EMP, but um, I still um, feel that there is something uh, missing. So final point then, um, EU influence over uh, or in uh, the Eastern Partnership area obviously is, is quite varied. Um, what I think uh, accounts for that or how we can sort of break that down is um, First of all, I think it's it's stronger uh, the EU's influence in what you might call the weaker countries, and no offense to anybody um, from these countries uh, uh, here. Um, so I think EU influence is better in Moldova and Armenia, uh, for example, because there I think the, the balance between uh, the costs and benefits for these countries to actually deliver on some of the EU's conditionality uh, is much uh, better. It's weaker in countries uh, that are strong uh, uh, in themselves, or at least comparatively strong. So Ukraine and Azerbaijan, for example, I think the EU um, finds it very, very difficult to really exert uh, any major uh, concessions. But it's also uh, weaker in countries which have alternatives to um, associating themselves with the EU. So Georgia is still very much drawn to the United States. Um, in Belarus, of course, uh, very much drawn to, um, to Russia. So what I think I would like to see uh, from the EMP um, in the future is, um, first of all, more realistic expectations. What can actually be achieved uh, and where, uh, in what sectors, uh, in what particular countries. And finally, also, I think, a better prioritization of uh, resources to those areas and countries where the EU actually can um, have real impact on the world. Thank you. Thanks, Stefan. Thank you very much. Since Stefan made a precedent by invoking his nationality, from my accent and nationality, you can probably assume I'll speak longer and I'm even less disciplined on time. Uh, but because I've had two great speakers ahead of me, it also means that I have to skip some of the parts which I plan to say, and that's inevitable when I speak the last, which will also make my presentation less coherent and more repetitive. Uh, with this, I will just kind of straight plunge into a number of key issues. One is the Eurozone crisis. Now is a really bad time to discuss or do foreign policy. Eurozone crisis occupies most of the time of senior policymakers, and lots of the things in the neighborhood you need a strong high-level political push, at least you know, because of Russia and many others. And Europe doesn't have time to do real foreign policy these days. A second effect of Euro crisis is, um, is that Europe also has fewer resources. It's less money in absolute terms, uh, and now you have the budgetary review and the next financial perspective. In the best case, the EU will freeze its uh, funds. But uh, it's also a worsening of resources in relative terms, because other powers also have resources. It's China, it's Russia, it's uh, you know, the Gulf states. So you have a decrease in EU foreign policy resources, both in absolute terms and in relative terms. And you also, if you go to member states, they are cutting down the number of people they employ in embassies, they are reducing bilateral assistance. So there's a really difficult situation there as well. 
And of all, you also have, it kind of sounds nice, it's grammatically incorrect, but it sounds nice, and for, for poetic reasons sometimes it's accepted, but basically the Eurozone crisis has three effects. As a result of Euro crisis, the EU has less time for foreign policy, less shine for foreign policy because of decrease of power, and less dime for foreign policy, which is the money factor. There's a second microphone. No, it's okay. Um, the second point is there's a huge degree of interdependence between the European Union and its neighbors. And it's not just about refugees <coughs> and poverty which spills over into the European Union. It's even worse and deeper than that. What happens in the neighborhood affects European integration itself. Look at the next, uh, at the last few years. The war in Georgia seriously undermined intra-European solidarity and trust between member states. It wasn't about just Georgia and Russia, it was also about Poland and Germany or Vilnius and Paris. It put a huge strain on EU internal solidarity and relations between member states. Look at the gas destruction, gas cutoffs to Ukraine which happened several times in the last, well, in 2005 and 2009, 2010 in January. Uh, some, several EU member states didn't have gas in winter, when it was as cold as these days in Eastern Europe, when Kiski knows it's minus 25 in Finland and minus 23 in Moldova and Bulgaria today. Um, so what happens there, because of Russia and Ukraine, affects what happens inside Europe with EU member states, with European citizens freezing in their flats. Then look at last year, the invasion, <laughs> to put it in, uh, uh, the influx of Tunisians into Italy, which put under strain the Schengen zone, and Denmark introducing customs control uh, with Germany. You have, again, events out there influencing core aspects of the European project. Schengen, trust and solidarity. And now you have a situation with the Syrian oil embargo, when it's a big problem for Greece uh, and Greek contracts over Syrian oil. Again, you have events out there undermining how we, between EU member states, discuss and make, uh, make policies. So, trying to respond to this interdependence, the EU put up the European neighborhood policy, which so far had a number of tremendous effects. And if you just go through the statistics, I will tell you. If you look at trade, in the last seven, eight years, the EU became the biggest trading partner of Moldova, Ukraine, Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Georgia. Of the Eastern Partnership, only Belarus today trades more with Russia than the European Union. I think very few people realize that Russia is a smaller trading partner to all of the Eastern Partnership except Belarus than, uh, than the European Union is. If you look at conflict settlement, we see the European Union has now observers, 130 of them uh, in uh, Ukraine and Moldova monitoring the Transnistrian section of the border. Has 200 monitors in Georgia ensuring that the conflict doesn't flare up again. Uh, the EU is a negotiator and in Georgia and in Moldova and you know, a lot of people seven, eight years ago didn't even think this would happen. Uh, it's also easy to kind of underestimate, but just seven, eight years ago, the European Union had only two delegations in the Eastern Partnership, it was in Georgia and Ukraine. Today it has EU delegations in all of the Eastern Partners. Uh, the EU also has advisors in Armenia and Moldova who advise ministers on the reform process. These are tremendous achievements. Uh, so what we've had in the last years was a growing interdependence between the EU and its neighbors but, and interconnections. But then if you look from the other side of the coin, 
when you realize it's not just about EU presence, which has been growing, it's also about Europe's ability to influence what happens in the neighborhood. And there the picture is pretty bleak. Uh, if you look at democracy, it's really bad. In the last three years, Azerbaijan switched to a de facto lifetime presidency. The Armenian president, uh, what, 2008 in February, came to power and probably 10, maybe more people were killed on the street during post-electoral protests. Belarus, as you mentioned, in Ukraine you have a former prime minister in prison and basically Fialkovich completely ignores a very united EU front. Um, in democracy terms, things are going in the wrong direction, except for Moldova, as we all know. But, um, then you have also a number of things related to deep and comprehensive free trade and EU attractiveness. Uh, basically, um, the EU again assumes that access to its market is the best carrot it can give, and it's partly true. The problem is that deep and comprehensive free trade area, basically the deep and comprehensive part, reflects, refers to the fact that it's not just about free trade, it's about the fact that the EU exports its acquis and regulations into its neighbors, uh, neighboring countries. They have to implement EU requirements and standards for abattoirs, for elevators, for toilet paper, for everything. Now, if you're in a country like Georgia, which trades around 35% with the European Union, if you implement the acquis, what you receive is that implementing the acquis will make Georgian products much more expensive, and there's not many of them anyway, these are weak economies in all cases, but it makes all products more expensive, and they only benefit from kind of easier exports on a third of their export markets. But it makes their products more expensive for 70% of their trading partners, and their products less competitive. And DCFTA is not necessarily as attractive as the European Union assumes. Uh, it's all good in the long term, but for many of the states, you know, long term, they uh, would be happy to survive and maintain stability for the next two, three years. They can't think in terms of 20 years like the European Union does. So we have a big problem, attractiveness problem with the EU. Um, effects of the Lisbon Treaty, and I'll uh, finish soon. Um, one, I asked one of the EU officials and one of the delegations in the neighborhood, so how, how do you feel with the kind of post-Lisbon environment? He said, look, it's kind of worse, but I don't know if it's a regulator of mieux sauté, step back so that we jump further, or it's structural. So, uh, we still can't make a conclusion about the effects of the Lisbon but, uh, but some of the things, and it's also true that a lot of time it took just to set up, you know, hire the right people for the head of Russia unit of the European Commission was appointed just a few months ago, two years after the Lisbon Treaty. Um, it took, like, you know, weeks to get a computer and an office to a managing director uh, in the commission. It takes time, it seems. And then, you know, just think of Ashton appointing, um, I think in the first go she appointed like 30 diplomats, uh, 30 ambassadors, but to appoint 30 ambassadors, you need to interview around 90 persons. You know, multiply this one by one hour, add all the council meeting that the traveling Ashton has to do, <laughs> and you realize how difficult it is. Now, if you look in very specific terms what happened in the post-Lisbon, basically the logic of Lisbon was that before Lisbon you had commission delegations running money, projects, trade, and you had the EU special representative for Moldova and for South Caucasus doing high political stuff. The problem before Lisbon was that the commission delegations had the money, 
But do you have the political mandate to spend this uh, money in accordance to what the EU political priorities would do? So they would do technical and socially important stuff, you know, water sewage system in this or that village or hospital in this or that village, which is very important, but it's not political use of money. Then we had the EU special representatives who are going to negotiate with separatist entities, but they didn't have a budget. So they couldn't come and say, look, if you do this and you agree to this with the Moldovans or the Georgians, we will give you money for this. He couldn't use it because he didn't have these budgets at his disposal. Everything depended on commission council dynamic, which wasn't very good. Uh, so Lisbon was supposed to solve this problem. So what happened? In Moldova, the post of EU special representative was abolished. And then it kind of got delegated to two persons. Some business went to the head of delegation in Chisinau, and some other, and basically the role of the chief EU negotiator in conflict settlement talks on Transnistria went to a managing director, a very senior and very experienced former Slovak foreign minister and high representative in Bosnia, Miroslav Lajcik is his name, but he's also in the commission, he's managing director for Russia, Central Asia, South Caucasus, Balkans, Turkey, and of course he covers Moldova and Ukraine and Belarus. It's a huge brief. He can't spend 100% of his time on Moldova like the EU special representative did. Um, and then what happens is that the EU increases its funding, but then the, the way money is spent is outsourced to UNDP, which is again technical use of funding, as Stefan said. In the European, in the South Caucasus, if you look at what happened institutionally, then before Lisbon it was a complete mess. The European Union had an EU special representative for the South Caucasus with a mandate for Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. And separately, it had an EU special representative for the conflicts in Georgia, but he simultaneously was EU special representative for Central Asia. So you had two persons, one doing Central Asia and Georgia, and the other one supposedly doing South Caucasus. Plus you had the three heads of delegation. After Lisbon, what happened? They closed the EU special representative for the South Caucasus office in February last year. Uh, but then in September, they recreated the post. Uh, so, but they, when they merged the EUSR Georgia into this job, but basically the situation is that in the South Caucasus, you, you don't have a real change. You still have an EU special representative. Uh, we also appointed a very serious senior diplomat as head of delegation to Belize, a former Bulgarian prime minister. But basically, I don't see Lisbon happening on the ground in Georgia. Uh, so this is kind of a very kind of specific and small example. And I will finish here with just a kind of couple of ideas of what could be potentially the direction where the neighborhood policy could evolve. And there's no silver bullet. Things will probably continue to in terms of our effectiveness and ability to influence things. But some of the potential small tricks which could maybe minimize or improve management is would be to think about you know, joint leverage over trade issues, like creating new chambers of commerce across the board and pushing through businesses, uh, kind of joint lobbying by European businesses in these countries. What you have today is kind of blatant national lobbying by EU member states and EU businesses for a very national approach. Um, you could also, um, on the other problem with DCFTA is that it takes so long. Basically, with free trade negotiations, it takes seven, eight years probably from start to finish. And these kind of things have to be accelerated, but also revised. 
Um, what you have now is a very interesting process of visa-free talks with Moldova and Ukraine and Russia and potentially Georgia. And that is very interesting because basically the EU gives the offer of visa-free, but in exchange for very, very deep reforms with interior ministry, border guards, customs, uh, biometric passports, security of uh, breeder documents like birth certificates and marriage certificates, which has a kind of ripple-on effect across the system. And this is one positive thing, where basically the EU says that, look, we're ready to abolish visas, but in exchange, you're going to change the way your justice and home affairs sector works, which could have uh, potential good effects. And my last point would be on aid. Uh, the EU has been used to being a really rich, you know, splashing money around the world uh, in development assistance, and it hasn't woken up to the fact that countries like China or India actually shouldn't get EU money. There was this debate, I think, like, what, a year ago, where the UK maintained its assistance to India, but India, in the meantime, has a space program. UK doesn't have one. It has a nuclear program. Uh, and it's spending this money on uh, kind of high politics projects, whereas the UK funds hospitals. Um, then you have this story with in Beijing. Uh, the Beijing airport before the Olympics was co-financed by European Investment Bank. Why? When China you know, is buying, has lots of money to buy European companies. And so in a sense, it's like it's time to wake up. The EU doesn't have money to just go around the world. And it should reallocate the way it funds its money to there where it can have uh, an impact and an influence and make, make much better resources and wake up to the fact that it can't spread its resources as thinly as it did until now. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Nico. I would first like to give the panelists a chance to respond to each other or to pick up on points that the others made that they would like to comment on. Um, and we can see, I think, the microphone which should reach with everybody. How much have I got time? Okay, that's fair enough. Because you do want the audience to come in later. So sure, just sure. Well, uh, two excellent, I think, opening remarks, uh, and, and I don't necessarily want to challenge them. Just thinking one thing about Stefan's remarks. I think he made a very interesting and important point in his his remarks when he was basically asking, if I gathered you correctly, does the EU have the ability to act if something goes wrong in the neighbourhood? And I think this is, a, this is a very important question indeed. And I don't want to present myself as a sage, but I, but I did warn already in 2004 in a very obscure European journal, uh, urging the EU to think about the strategic ramifications of engaging countries like Georgia. And I was actually saying, using the, the example of a Georgia-Russian war, that what the EU would do in this case, and arguing that the EU couldn't do anything. But of course what we do know is that the EU was, or at least France, was able to do quite a lot indeed in mediating the conflict and then actually the EU getting the monitors on the ground. And, and, and the question that follows, uh, and, and perhaps uh, Stefan would elaborate on this, does this one instance mean that this will also be the case in the future? Do you think the EU could actually rise to the occasion again? Pass the microphone on and Stephanie can ask. 
No, I, I, I don't see myself in any large extent of, uh, of disagreement with anything uh, else that has been said. So let me just um, very quickly um, try to respond to, uh, uh, to Hiskey's question here. I think the, the main problem for the EU is that it's still all very reactive. Uh, so there is, as far as I know, there is simply no decent level of scenario planning no planning ahead, what might happen in countries X, Y, and Z, what would we be able to do, what contingency plans do we have in place, for example, if, I don't know, the ammunition stump in Moldova blows up and we have massive amounts of refugees, or what are we actually able to do if social tensions in Crimea are exploding, you get real conflict uh, primarily between, I would assume, Crimean Tatars and uh, sort of the Russian speakers uh, on the um, uh, in the area. Uh, what would actually happen if there was a real renewal of conflict uh, in and over Nagorno-Karabakh? Uh, so I think from that perspective, the EU, I think, would be quite able to react and to react reasonably quickly. And I think Georgia does give a good precedent here. Um, but I think the aspiration that the EU really have is to prevent rather than to to manage. And it's I don't think it's anywhere there. And the problem here is at two levels. Um, in such a politically sensitive area um, like security, it's very, very difficult to get now, well, as of soon, 28 member states to actually agree onto a strategy which they all buy. I mean, already negotiating that I think would take years, and then to get agreement and nobody disrupting it with a referendum at home or something like that would be really difficult. But even more so, you don't have these strategies at the country level. You have country strategies, <coughs> and there are lots of them, and there are regional strategies and all of that, but none of them are actually. Um, very specifically aimed at really potentially quite serious security crisis that the EU might face. Um, and if I just sort of contradict myself a little, where Georgia, I think, was an example of the EU could actually come up with something, I think Libya uh, is the counter-example, where what the EU came up with, in the end, was so embarrassing in particular because nobody wanted it. I mean, they had their little operation, crisis management operation, ready to go. Just give us a call. That was almost literally what it said. Uh, but nobody called. Neither the UN nor the Libyans actually said, oh, please, you, can you come with your little crisis management operation and, uh, and save us? I think that also shows us from the outside that there's actually very little trust in the ability of the EU to deliver credible stuff in this area. I think that's a major challenge that the EU needs to overcome. Traveler, <coughs> respond to questions from me. Do you want to ask colleagues a question? I think, you know, but...
Let's get the most serious challenge to your Leave the microphone here. I think we can hear each other anyway. And this is going to be a podcast and we need written permissions from everybody. Um, I think, I don't know what that means. Let's get written permissions of people who ask questions. But let's just open it up, um, even if it means it's not greatly audible on this podcast. Can we put beeps on the podcast? <laughs> and if people could maybe just briefly introduce themselves and ask a question. Oh, uh, I'm Matthew, I'm actually uh, not a student here, just a student nearby, um, hopping in for the day. Um, yeah, um, obviously we're talking about um, the EU's influence in its eastern neighbourhood and its foreign policy in its eastern neighbourhood, and the second speaker mentioned how that impacted with its relationship with Russia. Um, I was wondering also, because you know, for a long time previously, Europe has already had a security-focused alliance, NATO, that was very much, of course, focused on Russia and very much focused on its eastern neighbourhood. How has um, the EU's foreign, eastern foreign policy complemented or conflicted with NATO's foreign policy in that region? Do you want to ask anybody in particular? Or um, anybody who wants well, I mean, the second speaker talked more about Russia, so uh, I don't know if <laughs> that's your specialism there. Can we collect some questions? You can also collect more questions if you want. I mean, we still have plenty of time, but um, yeah, let's maybe take some questions on the other side of the room. Uh, I'm Joanna Legg, I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Bath. Um, I have two questions. One's probably for Stefan, and then the second one will probably be open to everybody. Um, in talking about the limited diplomatic capacity of the External Action Service, I wonder if you might like to comment on whether or not member states, and some more than others, probably want it that way because they're worried about competence creep and uh, the external action service kind of infringing <coughs> their territory in terms of diplomatic relations with uh, partner countries. And um, secondly, everybody to a different extent has mentioned the fact that the incentives that the EU currently offers don't quite seem to be enough, whether or not it's the DCTFA uh, taking too long or whether or not uh, the incentives that they can offer in terms, um, in other terms, aren't, aren't quite right. And I wonder um, what you think about the new approach and the kind of focus on the three M's from 2011 uh, money uh, movement mobility and um, the differentiated approach, more for more, less for less, how that's going to fly, whether or not that's well received or or not, and this is a different case by case as well. So we take one third question, somebody in the back. Thanks for three brilliant presentations. Stefan, I was actually happy to hear that there is at least one person at the EU delegation in Moldova who covers conflicts. <laughs> uh, there, is a, there is a person, a member of press team in Moscow delegation of the EU who can't speak Russian, so uh, this is actually quite good news. Um, my question is about this approach. I mean, you have a couple of uh, problems with the implementation of EMP policy in the neighborhood. Um, I was wondering if you could add one more, and that's the sort of you know, very different approach towards different styles of regimes we have in the neighborhood. You know, we, we ban Lukashenko, we sanction Lukashenko, but we still engage with Azerbaijan. We get that kind of conditions for, for Ukraine in terms of trade agreements. We have very different conditions for Georgia, or preconditions to start the negotiations. And obviously, an individual approach is part of the is, is part of what we should be doing. But do you see a way of how sort of this um, sort of unifies some of those, especially in terms of democratic promotion in the country and how we engage with different regimes in the, in the region? Because it may lead to accusations that are 
think fewer questions to everybody anyway. So not sure who wants to start. Stefan had two specific questions directed towards him, but that's people who literally don't have to think about it. So if you might start. Yeah, it's Thank you about the differentiation. I think that was sort of uh, more directed in my direction. There is something to it, I, I, I guess. Uh, I've had a lot of discussions in, in Brussels about these things with different officials, especially when, when I, with my time at the ministry. And there was this sort of growing realization in Brussels, in the bubble, that somehow the whole ENP and these external policies had been construed if somehow the EU was the demandeur that it was actually the EU that was desperate to engage these countries and the EU was so desperate to get something done. And, and so the other side could always play slightly hard to get in order to get a better bargain or to make the EU to beef up its offer or, or do something like that. And I think there has been a growing realization in the European Union and a, a conscious attempt to turn the tables on these neighbors, actually saying that, hey, look guys, it's, it's you who are demanding something and wanting something from us. And if you want this access, you have to do these things. And if you want enhanced mobility, then you have to do these kind of reforms in, in exchange. And, and I think to a degree it has worked. It has sort of emboldened, I think, the EU to be, to be perhaps uh, more robust in its approaches towards these neighbours. But at the end of the day, I think that the issue is, 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 is really political and then boils down to the question, what is the EU able and willing to offer these countries so that the, sort of the stakes would be high enough to really get their attention? And, and, and I think that has been lacking, the political component and the will on part of the member states, all of them, uh, to actually uh, put a serious offer and a serious policy in place. And as long as that is the case, then all of these kind of things are just tactical ploys and manoeuvring, um, pro probably important in their own right, but uh, but unlikely to make a crucial difference, I think. Have I given Stefan enough time now? <laughs> of course, of course, I have to say no, because um, otherwise I'll, I'll just embarrass myself with uh, lack of knowledge here. Um, in terms of NATO and EU, I think the problem here, but if you want to call it a problem, I think is that there is the reason why this is sometimes difficult is that NATO is very much, I think, dominated by uh, the U.S. and by U.S. interests in the region. And just sort of to illustrate that with the case of Georgia, I think it's um, it wasn't exactly an accident that um, sort of the whole situation began to escalate uh, from spring. Uh, 2008 onwards, um, partly I think because you had Kosovo, uh, the UDI there uh, on February 17th, but also I don't think it was essentially helpful to Georgian-Russian and EU-Russian relations that the Bucharest summit uh, of NATO, I think on April 1st, actually reaffirmed that yes, of course Georgia has a membership uh, uh, perspective in NATO. I mean, that's I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that that's not very popular in uh, the Kremlin or in whoever makes foreign policy in, uh, in Russia. So I think to that extent, that's, um, that was quite difficult. And also, um, 
I mean, the, the way in which the crisis unfolded in, uh, in 2008, in the, literally sort of in the last hours before the Georgians uh, marched in, I mean, it was remarkable that um, Brussels was fully engaged, Vienna was fully engaged in the sense of the OSCE being based there, but nobody could be reached at a senior level in Washington. Uh, uh, literally, they were not taking calls uh, uh, in the State Department, in the Defense Department, in the uh, uh, Bush administration. Um, now, we can speculate in all kinds of ways and come up with conspiracy theories of why that happened, but um, I do think, in that sense, sort of the slightly different constellation and configuration of NATO interests in the region compared to what the EU has does not always uh, help. Um, uh, the competence creep, um, well, if you design a, um, an external action service that even at its fullest will have the size of the diplomatic service of the Netherlands, um, I'm not too worried that um, any of the member states per se will, will feel threatened uh, uh, about that. Um, what I meant by, by lack of diplomatic uh, competence is that um, it's just a very different mentality in, the, in a commission-dominated EEAS compared to what I would see sort of as like the grand uh, um, strategy uh, diplomacy um, that you get very often in more traditional foreign offices or, or foreign ministries or something like that. So it's not necessarily a question of, in that sense, that the member states deliberately wanted to keep it down in terms of resources, uh, manpower, and so on and so forth. It's simply the way in which the, the initial staffing has shaped up doesn't really help really with making diplomacy on the ground, uh, uh, if you want. So I think that's the, uh, I think that's the, the main problem here. On the other hand, I mean, some of the stories that I've heard about the EAS, actually people are leaving now, and they are leaving uh, fast and in, in great numbers because they don't really like it that much. So now there might be actually an opportunity. Um, <coughs> also what the EU needs, I think, they need to have some sort of diplomatic academy at some stage where actually they train people in basic diplomatic skills uh, rather than somebody who can do the accounting of a project, uh, uh, put them in charge of um, something. Um, and then finally, um, sort of unenhanced conditionality. I think that's mostly sort of to sell it to the EU member states. It doesn't strike me necessarily as a, as a particular message that will be heard uh, in the target countries, but I think it's given the financial crisis um, and the critique that the EU has widely had in terms of how it has applied and work conditionality in the past, then this is more sort of a message that's inward looking to assure people that we will not waste our scarce resources on countries that don't do what we ask them to do in the first place. Yes, I would like to raise the temperature of this panel by disagreeing with Stefan for the first time. About member states feeling threatened by the EAS, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that was clearly the case, and I'm, I'm surely I'm not giving up any confidentiality. 
by saying this, but at my time at the ministry, it coincided with the building up of the EAS, and it was astonishing to see how some unnamed member states, that much I must be loyal to my oath of secrecy, did their very best to sabotage and micromanage the whole process from start to finish. And, and I guess you can guess what and who these countries were. And the other party who was very interested in sabotaging this process, of course, was the Commission. I mean, they removed the juicy chunks from the competencies outside the, the relics so that they would never be part of the EAS to begin with. And they made sure, and a lot of Commission officials themselves made sure, that they would never go to the EAS to begin with. They would stay in the Commission and take care of the real business there. So there has been a lot of infighting, there has been a lot of suspicion, and an and, and outright sabotage of this whole process. And as a consequence, we have a, 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 a royal mess in our hands, at least in the short term. Over the long term, I'm much more optimistic, because if in 1973, when the European foreign ministers for the very first time convened for the EPC discussions over the uh, fireplace in, in some remote uh, castle, I presume, if someone would have tell, told them that in 2011 Europe would have a foreign ministry and a foreign minister, I think they would have gone out screaming and say, hell no, we're not going to do this. So give the Europe another 30, 40 years, I'm sure we will have an excellent European <laughs> diplomatic service, but for the time being it looks pretty awful indeed. <laughs> I think absolutely the right, he's given the problem, if we push it just one step further, I don't think Europe wants to do foreign policy. I mean, the EU member states, EU prime ministers, presidents, let alone the external election service. So it's not just a kind of institutional battle, which is there. But the problem is much more fundamental. We don't want to do foreign policy. We go to China, we talk trade, emissions, we don't talk politics 90% of the time. With Russia, we're happy we don't talk politics. Um, you know, today, Catherine Ashton issued a statement that Yavlinsky wasn't registered as a candidate. But this, this happened a week ago. Uh, Europe doesn't want to do foreign policy these days. Uh, and it's not just the Euro crisis. Even before that, I didn't see this desire. There was, like, ten years ago, there was some ambition. Seven years ago, there was some ambition. I think that ambition is largely lost. It might come back, but I just don't see it in the way the political class works. Uh, on kind of diplomatic capacity, you know, one of the things that you also mentioned is like most of the EU development money stayed with defeat, so the external election service is, still doesn't have access as much as was presupposed before Lisbon to the way EU money are spent. In some delegations you have ambassadors who can, should sign off EU projects, but they actually can't political influence because the persons who manage these funds are from the development uh, department, uh, DG development. So the ambassador signed, but they can't politically influence the distribution of money. So kind of a Lisbon agenda hasn't been fully implemented. Um, on incentives, uh, look, I think it's like the incentives and conditionality discussion. It's been kind of a dominant framework of analysis for enlargement and for Central and Eastern Europe and for the Balkans for the last 15 years. I think in foreign policy terms is not that much of a useful concept anymore. Not just for the European Union, same goes. Actually, we're in an era when foreign policy is increasingly irrelevant. You know, the Russians can't influence, they couldn't kick out Lukashenko from power, and they tried. 
They've run, they're running into problems in South Ossetia and Abkhazia and Transnistria of trying to push for their people. The Russians can't, you know, you have the Kyrgyz, the kind of Tajiks arresting Russian pilots and it takes three weeks to Russia to... The EU is in the same situation. You see the US, what a kind of from disaster to disaster US foreign policy is. I don't see the Chinese being terribly effective in their foreign policy. So in a sense, it's kind of, now we live in an era when domestic politics is so much more dominant over foreign policy consideration for everyone. Um, so it's not so much, I think 90% of the discussion of how what happens out there is not about our incentives, our attractiveness, is about the domestic dynamics in these countries. This is why Ukraine had five years of a democratic government and didn't do anything in terms of reforms. Georgia has done a lot. They did a lot of mistakes. Power is quite centralized, but they've done a lot. Not because the EU gave them the incentives, it's because they had the political desire and vision and kind of structure that allowed them to do that. You have today Moldova, which is a bit of a kind of successful neighborhood policy, which is as politics is as messy as Ukrainian orange politics was, but they are doing much more than the Ukrainians did. Um, because there is a domestic incentive, and it's not about, you know, the EU gives the same incentives to Moldova, Ukraine, Georgia, Armenia, but some countries do it, some countries don't. And it's not because of the EU, it's because of what happens in these countries, even small countries, even dependent uh, countries. Look back, Arab Spring, but Tunisia had 80 plus percent of trade dependence on the European Union during Ben Ali. There is a story, do I have one minute to... There was this basically funny story. The EU was engaging with Ben Ali um, uh, as kind of, and then Ben Ali around 2008 said, okay, you're good partners, you don't piss me off too much, I'll allow you to spend 100,000 euro per year on civil society support in, in, in Tunisia. The condition was to give 50,000 to pro-government civil society and 50, uh, half of it to opposition. So in the first year, the EU in January 2009 uh, gave some money to the uh, Association of Democratic Women yeah, of Tunisia. They gave them, I think, 30,000 euro. And the, you know, that's a country that is 80% dependent on the EU, received a lot of assistance, doesn't have natural resources, completely dependent on the EU. So they gave this money to the Association of Democratic Women and then a few months, like two months or one month later, the authorities arrested the bank accounts of the NGO. Um, so what happened, if you think the EU kind of called, and, or the French uh, called Benelli, no, basically the commission waited. And at the end of the budgetary year, in December, they wrote a letter to this NGO saying, you didn't spend the money during this year, please return them. <laughs> this is how EU was doing foreign policy. And of course, yes, it is true. I spoke to these people and then I checked it with the commission and they blushed, you know. It's amazing. You know, and these are countries which are small, completely dependent on us. And we just don't want to do, you know. The sovereign policy is outsourced to the French and the Spaniards in Morocco and Tunisia. You go there, the French ambassador is the king. They couldn't care less about conditionality, more for more. Uh, what, what else is there, you know? 
you have free trade talks between Morocco and the EU. It ended up being basically bloodbath organized to the Moroccans by the Spanish and French agricultural lobbies. And the Moroccans didn't get anything good out of it. Okay, let's open it up again. One question there. Thank you. Um, Felix Schroeder from uh, CCCL. I'm, I mean, hearing especially the responses, I'm, I'm starting to wonder whether the, the, the key here is that we don't have a, a very precise idea of what influence actually is. Because there are some mixed messages. Uh, the EU doesn't want to have any influence, or inactivity equals lack of influence, or inability to do things. So I'm not quite sure that we're grasping. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think we should confuse incompetence with lack of influence, and uh, Nico's recent example with clear incompetence, but I don't think this is reflective of uh, uh, unwillingness to influence. In the same way, the EU's participation in Libya, maybe it's down to the fact that the same EU members who are members of the UN Security Council, and also very important NATO allies, have decided that the best instrument for acting in Libya is NATO rather than the, rather than the EU. So, I think part of the, the whole EU story has been to try to achieve influence which is not in this kind of grand headline, you know, remove person from power, get pilot out, or, uh, and so on. The, the story of the EU, I think deliberately, has been to achieve influence by very small steps in, in a kind of very surreptitious way, which some uh, echoate with a kind of insidious form of imperialism. So I, I see influence, although I don't think influence is exercised in this kind of grand statement of a grand power. And I mean, the, the, I'm surprised to hear the story of the NATO enlargement uh, and, and Georgia, because I mean, there is a reason why the Americans weren't taking phone calls. They were probably busy talking to the field commanders in Georgia. Telling, telling them what the military, what the American troops should do or not do. Uh, and as you probably know very well, the Russian foreign ministry has represented the Bucharest summit as a huge victory for Russian foreign policy, not as a, as a, not as a defeat, as a kind of prod to, to, to spur a, a, a Russian action against Georgia. I was at the Bucharest summit and the Georgians were not celebrating at all. They were ashen, completely destroyed. They hadn't slept all night, um, knowing what the decision would be. So I'm, I'm very surprised to hear that you represent the decision as a victory for Georgia. Uh, so I mean, my, my key point is that this idea of influence, I, I don't see it operating in the way it's, it has been represented and it's been grand achievements. Uh, it will never be like that, I think. Thanks. More questions? Um, my name is Naina Gazelana. I'm a lecturer in Brunel University in External Relations Law. Um, we didn't talk much about Eastern Partnership and I um, was wondering what do you think about it and uh, whether this is an uh, acceptance on behalf of the EU that they failed initially to have this uh, general vision of putting Eastern and Southern neighbors together. Um, and maybe it's just an attempt to uh, shift focus from bilateral relations to a more multinational framework. One of the speakers mentioned that it's more politicized or multilateralized multi version of the EAP. 
But what about the instruments or the um, problems that were inherent in the and previous conditionality, uh, methods not matching the rhetoric? Do you think they are addressed at all at this partnership or it will phase as well in a couple of years' time? the war in Georgia and the new engagement and a brief comment. First of all, we are here in, in, in UK, but do you think that if not for the French presidency, it will be as quick a response, first of all. And what do you think that what will be the developments? Because EU ambassadors are in Georgia, they were frequently underlined that they are ready to go out and again have the regular peacekeepers, but this is the only international organization that is on the ground. So what do you think will be the further development? Thanks, okay, let's go and cross speakers if you want to. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'll try. Try, try. Right. Is this the last occasion I get to speak? <laughs> it depends how fast everybody is. Okay. So my bet is yes. Uh, my bet is yes. Okay, then I'm going to make four quick points and then I'm going to bow out. Uh, first of all, about the influence thing. Uh, that was an interesting remark and, and, and I think I would need to think about it a little bit more before saying anything serious. Or, uh, But I, I, I was left wondering that perhaps we just have the wrong benchmark because sort of the thing we are comparing against these new neighborhood policies of course is the accession process <coughs> which has been painted as this huge transformative experience of molding societies and changing europeanizing them domesticating the wild barbarians the animals in the east and, and now what we have come to see, sorry about my French, I woke up 2 a.m. UK time this morning, so I'm slipping into delirium a little, little by little. And, and what we are now seeing in Europe is that even accession process is not accession process. I mean, these changes are not perhaps as profound as we used to think in some of these new East, uh, European Union members, and maybe not even in some of the old European Union members. So maybe we have to sort of adjust our benchmark to get a better grasp of, of the actual influence of the European Union. However, the final analysis could be just as dire, that the EU lacks influence, but we have just been blinded by the wrong benchmark that we have been looking at. The other thing about the Eastern Partnership, I think I'm, I'm rather cynical about this one. Uh, I don't remember where the question came from, but... Uh, there, sorry. Uh, I think it was an internal tit for tat. Really, the reason for Eastern Partnership was that Cyprus wanted his union for the Mediterranean, and and that sort of created an opening for Sweden and, and, and Poland, and also the the went over the irritation fresh threshold of Merkel that she sort of said that okay, we're going to have this and we're going to do this just to balance balance the books. But something good has come out of it, I think, and, and that is the multilateral political platform that has been built into the Eastern partnership process. So in that respect, it's not a, an admission of defeat or admission of anything, it's just an internal political tit-for-tat in the European Union. But it, the, the multi, uh, multilateral platform, I think, is a useful 
useful instrument in many respects. For example, it helped to engage Belarus in the process. It ended ugly for, for reasons we all know, but without, I think, the Eastern Partnership, it would have been much more difficult for the European Union to at least try to embrace Lukashenko, however disgusting and, and weird that, uh, of course, is. Uh, the role of the French presidency, absolutely. If it would have been the Finnish presidency, it actually was the Finnish presidency uh, with the OSC chair. And I'm actually quite offended by the fact how Sarkozy pushed uh, poor Finland to the side, because we were really looking forward to to mediating the conflict in Finland. <laughs> 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 no, was actually on the ground. Yes, that's 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 true. That's true, and it was the only it was the OSCE cars that the French diplomats were driving around Georgia. So we will never let them forget that. But uh, <laughs> but for for all sort of intents and purposes. I think this whole Georgia business has become a, a refreezing exercise. That's what the EU is really doing on the ground. It's de facto refreezing the conflict because I don't see any solution. And then these other other entities on the ground and after Russia kicked Unomik out of, of Georgia, I think it's obvious that at least for the time being they don't want this kind of presence there. They want to keep it rather thin. And, and, and as long as this is the case, then the EU has to stay because it is the only actor with a mandate to operate in Georgia. And finally, the final point I want to end up with deals with this eternal complaint about the lack of strategy. That's the sort of the pet, uh, pet complaint of EU, EU scholars. The EU is not strategic. The documents are not strategic. And, and we need to have a strategy. And I, I think uh, I think a better way to th turn it, uh, to think about it is, is, is to turn it the other way around. The EU has not got a strategy because it or its member states has not wanted to have one. And I think this is sort of the basic ingredient of understanding <coughs> the, the lack of strategy in the European Union. Uh, I wrote years ago about the EU's Russia policy that the, the EU not only has the Russia policy deserves, but it also has, to a large extent, a one that it has actively wanted, because member states have seen it fit uh, to orchestrate issues in this manner. And, and I think the problem in the EU is not institutional, it is not doctrinal, it is political, and as long as this is the case, there is very little that any of these strategy exercises in themselves can make a difference. Thank you very much. Uh, on the question of, uh, of influence versus incompetence, I think part of the problem also is um, we try to measure what the EU delivers against its own rhetoric, and its own rhetoric is very much sort of this whole norms and values and democracy and human rights. And yeah, obviously it doesn't <coughs> deliver on these things, but then if you look at the sort of more basic uh, or base things like uh, trade and uh, access to, uh, to energy and security of supply and this and that and the other, actually the EU is not doing so badly. So maybe we need to sort of cut through all this EU rhetoric and say, well, the EU does actually have influence in things um, that are of reasonably important material. Uh, uh, impact for the EU itself. Um, I also think if you look at justice and home affairs, the focus it more on the internal security agenda. 
Actually, I mean, the EU has delivered quite a bit on border management, uh, increasing sort of through tying it to the visa travel, tying it in part to DCFTA uh, negotiations. It has actually achieved a lot for itself. So, I mean, if maybe we think of the EU more as a sort of, in inverted commas, realist foreign policy actor, actually the influence is not as bad uh, as it seems. It just doesn't always deliver very well on its, if you want, headline goods of not just making these countries more democratic, more uh, more prosperous, but really making them in some ways more uh, more stable, but stable for what the EU actually wants. Uh, so I think in, thi in this way you could say there is a degree of hypocrisy, but that's not the same as saying that well, the EU doesn't have any any influence. Um, it's what you measure it against, and so I mean, in that sense, more, in a way, more optimistic that the EU can actually do foreign policy. Not necessarily traditional foreign policy, but foreign trade policy. It's quite good, actually. I mean, it, it does reason, work reasonably well. Um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Um, thank you. I Actually, in my presentation, I tried to kind of show this tension between EU presence and influence, which I defined as ability to achieve outcomes. So I think the right way to analyze influence is has the EU been able to achieve its outcomes. Of course, the problem is that the out its outcomes are sometimes too big. You know, we transform the neighborhood and we make mini Slovenians out of Georgia and Armenia. But sometimes they are too small. And just to give you a couple of examples, you know, the EU, the first ever EU rule of law mission to Georgia, EU just tennis, its objective, 12 people, 12 months for a year, its objective was to write a criminal code, a strategy to reform the criminal system in Georgia. And then they declared success, they wrote the strategy and left. Uh, and you all know very well that it's very nice to have nice laws in these countries, but you know, implementation is key. So in a sense, some goals are, as, are kind of defined as too narrowly, and some other ones are kind of too big. Now, the way the EU works and kind of is transformative, you're right, it's for small steps. But the problem is that you can't disconnect the small steps from the grand strategy and vice versa. I'll give you a couple of examples and dilemmas. In Ukraine, the EU has a visa dialogue which is presupposed, I said, you know, reform of the ministry, border reform, lots of other good things. Ukraine joined the European energy community and the EU offered, you know, a couple of years ago, several billions to help Ukraine transform its energy sector. But then you can't do these things if they put Timoshenko in prison. They also, by the way, finished negotiations on deep and comprehensive free trade, which they are not going to sign because Timoshenko is in prison. So you have that grand strategy, Timoshenko on human rights, blocking the ability of small steps to transform Ukraine. You have such dilemmas in Belarus and Azerbaijan, plenty of them. Another kind of funny case. Before the war in Georgia, the EU was trying to get involved in conflict settlement in South Ossetia since 2002. The way they said we'll do it is we'll spend a lot of money and we'll gain ourselves a seat at the table. So they came with assistance money to South Ossetia. One of the projects they funded was a railway station in Skin Valley, and then someone else was supposed to build the railway, they didn't build, so you had this nice building without railways in front of it, standing there for several years. 
Um, the other thing is that they also rebuilt schools. And if you've been to some of these EU-funded schools in Tamarasheni, if you know, what the problem is that the EU invested money into these schools, really nice new schools, trying to substitute the strategy for small steps. And then the war happened, and those schools are destroyed. And the EU investments of millions have gone nowhere because the EU didn't have a strategy. So you can't just do small steps because the big thing comes, hits you, knocks you off, Timoshenko is in prison, you know, Georgia war starts, and all your small steps were a waste of money and resources and time if you don't have a political strategy. And these are just a couple of examples. Um, and I'm kind of... Yeah, I'll, I'll stop here. Okay, I think we have to leave it there. I realized at the very beginning, I should have said that we were meant to have a fourth panelist whose name you see up at the board. Um, Petr Grakopi couldn't come, unfortunately. He's in bed with a very high fever. So in case he's listening to the podcast and seeing what he's missed, we all wish him um, all the very best. Um, we're glad that the three speakers we had did manage to come, even if it meant coming from uh, getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning, but uh, hopefully getting somewhere where it's about 20 degrees warmer. Was <laughs> <laughs> um, um, it was also very nice, I uh, would also like to thank you uh, to come. It was nice to see there were quite a few colleagues from, from various places across the road coming to, to the talk. So thank all of you for coming and um, see you hopefully for the next installment of the lecture series. <laughs>